Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, Senior Pastor here at St. Philip the Deacon. Uh, and on behalf of this congregation, which uh, presents these uh, talks as a community service, it's my privilege to welcome you here tonight to um, the penultimate, the second to last event in our 2021-22 Faith and Life Lecture Series. A special welcome to anyone who has not been at one of these in the past. We're grateful to have you here. And I want to extend, as always, uh, a welcome to anyone joining us virtually as well. Uh, we're grateful for your presence. If you've not been at one of these in the past, um, just sort of broadly what we try to do with these talks is bring in uh, nationally and internationally renowned and acclaimed speakers and thinkers. We brought in um, nonprofit and for-profit leaders. We've brought in sociologists, historians, artists. We've brought in athletes. Uh, and we have brought in a few journalists over the years, which is what we are blessed to have with us tonight. I'll say a word about him in a second, but just a note about the flow for tonight. Uh, he will speak for about 45 minutes, give or take. After that, we'll have a chance for Q&A. Uh, so those of you who are in person, you are welcome to come forward and ask a question at one of the mics. There are mics on my right and left. Those of you who are at home watching, if you want to submit a question, for that period, you can send it to an email, social at spdlc.org. That's social at spdlc.org. Or uh, if you're on either the St. Philip Deacon website or the Faith and Life website streaming this, there should be a box uh, for comments, and you're welcome to submit a question that way as well. Uh, I mentioned we've had uh, some journalists over the years. In fact, the very first uh, Faith and Life event now uh, 19 or 20 years ago, was uh, a local journalist. Tonight's speaker has more of an international flair. He immigrated here to the United States with his mother. He'll say a word about that. He is also, he's currently the contributing editor of the American Conservative, a visiting fellow at the Franciscan University Veritas Center for Ethics and Public Life, and he was most recently the op-ed editor of the, um, or the opinion editor of the New York Post. Um, I do this every time we welcome someone. I also like to include a note or two about our speaker that's off the uh, regular bio. So the couple things I will lift up are one, uh, that he celebrated his wedding anniversary on Monday, I believe. So happy anniversary. And oh, <laughs> um, I don't know if he'll say more about this or not, but he was once recruited by the CIA. I will leave it to you to decide whether or not they actually succeeded in recruiting him. In any case, will you join me in welcoming Sorab Amari? Good evening. Thank you all for, for having me. Thank you especially to Pastor Tim um, for inviting me to speak in this distinguished speaker series. So many more distinguished speakers in the past than I. Um, I want to address the CIA thing very briefly, and then we'll... It will, this will fit into the story about myself that I'm, I'm going to tell you in a bit, but since it's been put out there, it's worth mentioning very immediately that I don't work for the CIA, nor did I ever get to, but I used to be a school teacher. We'll talk about that, and one day I was so frustrated with the job of being a school teacher that I thought I, I would just do anything to, to be rid of this work and these kids. So I, as I speak Persian, as you'll understand. I speak, it's a defense-critical language, so I went on CIA.gov and I ta -ta 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 -ta, filled out the application, and um, I thought it would go nowhere. 
why would they want me? But sure enough, within 45 days, someone called and said, hey, I'm Jack from the Central Intelligence Agency. You know, we'd like to have you come over. And it went pretty far, the interview. And at every stage, they would say, by the way, if anyone asks you, even your own mom, say, I'm, work I'm looking to work for the government. Don't say it's the CIA. Of course, I was, this was when I was 21, 22 years old. So that very first time, as soon as my gr then girlfriend called me, I said, Bond, James Bond. And I kept, <laughs> and I kept telling everyone <laughs> that in fact, and, and I didn't get the job, but it wasn't for that reason. It's because I had family back in Iran, which would have compromised me. So anyway, that's a long story. We won't get there. So this morning, uh, or I should say yesterday, when Pastor Tim picked me up from the airport, he asked me, have you ever been to Minneapolis before? And I sort of offhandedly said, no, I've, this is my first time. And then as I parted ways with him, I remembered that that's not true. In fact, Minneapolis would play a supremely pivotal role in my life. And so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself before going on to discuss uh, my more, most recent book, the Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. And in that biography, you will see this pivotal role played by Minneapolis in my life story. But to begin at the beginning, I was born and raised in Tehran, Iran, six, day, six years to the day that the Ayatollah Khomeini returned from his Parisian exile to topple the Shah's regime and herald the new Islamic Republic. And the, the fact that I had been born six years to the day um, when Ayatollah Khomeini returned was something of a joke in our family because most of the members of my family had opposed the revolution. They were, they were in some cases, connected to the ancient regime. In some cases, they just didn't like Khomeini, what have you. Now, I'll tell you, my immediate family did support the revolution and instantly came to regret it. But my wider family didn't. And one of the people in our wider family was someone who had been a police colonel under the old regime. And whenever there was a family reunion, he would always ask me, when were you born, Saurabh? And I would, I would give the answer February 1st. And I knew that he knew the answer, and he knew that I knew the answer, but, uh, and I knew that he knew the answer, but we would play along anyway because it was the joke. And then he would respond when I said February 1st, pif pif, you brought the imam with you. That is, you brought Khomeini, or you carry the stench of Khomeini. That was the world I grew up in. It was a, um, a world divided against itself or divided internally because within our, behind our closed doors, it was a world that, where I was surrounded by Western books and movies and ideas, some of them highbrow, some of them lowbrow, Reagan-era cartoons, um, you know, all the movies from the 80s you can imagine, Baywatch. And, the world outside was, of course, the Islamic Republic. And like I said, my family had supported, the, my immediate family had supported the revolution, but I almost instantly came to regret it because they were basically secular people. And from a very young age, I came to form this powerful but ultimately inchoate and messy understanding of what freedom meant. When you're born in Iran, not only is it that you're obviously under a regime that is it can be uh, pretty cruel, it can be pretty high-handed in how it uh, regulates public morality, but beyond that, you're immersed in this thicket of tradition, of things that are handed down to you, and there are, they contain truths that you more or less have to accept. 
Some of them are ones that are shared, but I think by people in this room. For example, the idea that natural beauty, the beauty of the world outside of our little garden in Tehran speaks of something more than just what you see, that it bespeaks order in nature, and the fact that there is order in nature suggests maybe there is a creator. That was one of them. But there were more, there were ones that were more particularistic, like the fact that you know, Iran is superior to all its Arab neighbors, um, or that the Shiite branch of Islam is the true one and the Sunni one is false. And these truths, you don't debate, you don't uh, discuss and reach by deduction. These are the kinds of truths that I would pick up sitting at my great-grandmother's feet while she smoked her domestic brand cigarettes, and you would, they were transmitted to you that way. But over time, the traditions of Iran, for me, got mingled with the Islamic Republic and all of its cruelties, such that I came to associate all tradition with oppression, with judicial amputations and judicial floggings. And so, the, furthermore, the, the tension between the, the life behind our closed doors, where my parents drank alcohol and ideas like democracy were openly discussed, and the world outside, that tension became too much to bear, the kind of double thinking, double living that a lot of people live. Um, and unfortunately, I would say has now come to the West, but that's a different story. That caused me to ultimately decide that I am against God in a, in a very in the way that a 13-year-old might think, right? That I am an atheist, um, and I thought that I was the only 13-year-old to have ever hit upon this idea. The and of course, as soon as you do, you th you want to inject it everywhere you can. Uh, in my case. That meant in school, which was somewhat dangerous. Um, certainly, you shouldn't tell your teachers that you don't believe in God. Um, the occasion for it was we were on a trip to the north of Iran, like many um, Iranian families from the capital, Tehran, they traveled to the north for vacation. And we were on one such trip. And on the way there, we had been stopped by the morality police and interrogated. But it was okay, they passed us, waved us by. Then again, we were harassed when we got to the beach. Uh, we thought we had found some little idol where men and women could share the beach. In the public beaches, often there is a curtain that separates the beach and it starts from the shoreline and runs down the sea for several meters to create separate men's and women's areas. But we had found our one of our little idols where you could get away from all of that. And so that's, we had, thought we were relaxing, but then the um, morality police showed up. They're called the Committee from the Promotion of Virtue and the Deterrence of Vice, although I often confuse those two. Um, and they showed up and, and uh, asked us to smell the water jug, the hot water jug, and sure enough, you know, that as soon as the officer, the plainclothes man was the leader of the other two, or uniformed, he, as soon as he smelled it, he sort of screwed up his face, he knew it was alcohol, and started berating the adults, you know. It's almost time for your midday prayers, but look at you, what are you doing? Look at this, this, this these children, what are they gonna learn from you? And how old are you, son, he turned to me. <clears throat> and I was, by then, like I said, nearly 13 years old. My, my voice was cracking, my pimples were breaking out. But for some reason, I thought he would take it easier on us if I said I was five. I said I'm five. <laughs> And this whole situation became so surreal because that's such an absurd thing to say that he let us go. 
but not before saying, look, if you're having so much fun, get, share your candy with us, which is code for the men pull out their wallets together, they kind of pool and pay the guardians of the nation's virtues to leave you alone and be on their merry way. So that night, you know, and I, as soon as I got home, I decided, <clears throat> I got back to our villa, I decided that there is, there is no God. Luckily, I, was, I, I had a certain confidence that came with the fact that I knew we were headed for the United States because I, uh, thanks to a, an uncle who had settled here long ago in the United States, I had what was called a, a permanent residence visa and AKA a green card, AKA obtained through what our pr previous president called chain migration. And so sure enough, I had this vision of America as a place of intense secularity, intense individualism, the absence of that suffocating thicket of tradition that I knew from the homeland. And so therefore, when I was flying ultimately across the Atlantic, I was really coming to where I really belonged. It would be something like you would see in the movies, some combination of the West Coast um, and sort of those scenes from Baywatch slash a very decadent 1980s Manhattan, as one might encounter in the movies of the time. Um, so, and sure enough, we boarded the plane, it was a KLM flight, and the first layover was in Amsterdam, okay, whatever, and then another layover. Uh, well, no, not, then, then the big flight across the Atlantic, and you look at the flight map path, path, remember they projected it at the back of the plane at that time, and the, the plane sort of went right over Manhattan, there was no stopping, and we stopped in a place called Minneapolis-St. Paul. Only, but this was a very decisive thing, because when you get your green card, you don't open it. They give you this white envelope that you're not supposed to open until uh, you get to the United States, and then an immigration naturalization service officer opens it for you. And that's what, the, that's what happened. So Minneapolis played that pivotal role for me. As, it, as so it, Someone joked that I should become an honorary Minnesotan. And then, but then we took another flight, again, further and further away from the decadent Manhattan of the 1980s, we went to a place called Salt Lake City, Utah. Hmm. Now, when you're coming to the US, you don't have a, quite a sense of its geography, of its vastness, but we didn't stop there. Then my uncle, the one who had obtained the green cards for us, picked us up in a truck and took us to a town named Eden, Utah. And as you're coming in, there's a little sign that says P.O.P you know, 598 or 602, I can't remember, but it's population 600, it was tiny, and it was overwhelmingly Mormon. And so to make, to speed up this portion of the story, I almost instantly switched my oppositional energies, which had hitherto been directed against the Iranian mullahs, and took as my target what little of the Protestant ethic still percolated in a place like Eden, Utah. Right? The rest of the country was already fast secularizing. This is the 1990s. It's, we, we would still go much further now, 20, 20 some years later. But at the time, Eden, Utah was a pretty religious place and I, I felt that I had to oppose that. And I went through here, the story becomes less exotic. It becomes more familiarly American. I went through the typical phase of teenage life when I read Friedrich Nietzsche, um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, God is Dead. I found that electrifying, 
I didn't get all the biblical allusions that are sprinkled throughout Nietzsche's work because I hadn't read the Bible. But I knew that obviously Nietzsche came later than the Bible, so that must mean it's, he's right, he's better, right? He's newer. Um, and that prospect, which I grasp, that if, if God is dead, now who had killed him? Did he die of natural causes? That's a, a different question. But if God is dead, that man is not a creature. Therefore, he is not subject to any creator, and he doesn't have any essence pre-existing him. You can remake the world however you want. And you can embrace very radical politics, as I did. Again, not exactly exotic for someone in their late teens and early 20s. So then, over a long period of time, though, I, I came to read other things, and I began to abandon that confidence uh, of the atheist. It would take many years. One decisive experience had to do with what I would do with myself after college. I went to, wasn't prepared to go to grad school or anything yet, so I went, I did something called Teach for America. It's a program that places recent college graduates in needy classrooms across the country. In my case, I was sent to the U.S.-Mexico border to a town called Brownsville, Texas. Across the border is Matamoros. Um, now it's actually gotten very horrendous, but at the time it was actually, it, it, things were looking up at the time. Now it's sort of cartel activity has become really terrible there. Um, it is one of the poorest counties in the United States. I didn't speak a lick of Spanish, and to my shame, I never picked it up during my, the time I spent there. But the, the main thing was that, I mean, it's almost a shame that as a 20-year-old I was teaching other people's kids, but it, it also made a man out of me in more ways than one. I came to and ultimately sort of passed many important moral milestones during that experience. The most important one is that I came to grapple with my own conscience. What I mean by that is I had a, a roommate. He was an Israeli-American. He was also in this program. I never took the job that seriously. I would show up like the minute you were required, and I would leave right when the bell rang. But he worked very hard. He spent hours lesson planning beforehand, very strict in the classroom, spent hours after school coaching students, assessing them, and so forth. Remarkably, he was actually considered a troublemaker among the school administration early on, whereas I, I was seen as the star. The trick, I realized, in an American public school, if you're a school teacher, is to talk a big game in the faculty meetings. So you can sort of say, you know, chin-strokingly, you need to... Um, adopt more uh, adaptive uh, instructional technologies. And the principal would say, that guy, let's look how, how well-spoken he is. <laughs> Meanwhile, my friend, like I said, who was actually um, utterly destroying his body in a way with, with hard work, um, was seen as a troublemaker. Why don't you just pass the kids, right? That's inconvenient for the parents, inconvenient for the school. But he resisted that. He said, That's, that would be against the truth. I can't pass kids if they haven't learned something. And at the time, I mocked him initially. But gradually, it dawned on me that I'm actually ashamed that I'm not capable of such conviction, that I'm willing to just easily do whatever to kind of pacify my own needs and go through life. And, and it was merely enough that people perceived me as good rather than my being actually good. Um, that didn't lead me to belief in a, in a god. Like I said, I declared myself an atheist. But the fact that there was this 
awareness on my part of some objective moral order and that there was this interior voice inside me that would reproach me when I failed to meet the precepts of that objective moral order, it began to seed um, doubts about my atheism. Where would that moral order come from? Would it have an author? Again, fast forwarding, um, over time I did, I, did, I did read other things than um, the sort of radically atheistic modern philosophy. I then read Pope Benedict's books were very influential on me. And I had a couple of providential encounters with the mass, that is in moments of um, crisis as a young man in my 20s, I would go to Catholic churches. I couldn't tell you why, it's almost um, uh, providential. It is providential. On one such occasion, you know, I was in my early 20s, I was now living in the Northeast, I was working to train new Teach for America recruits in New York City, and I, uh, I don't know about 20-year-olds these days, I don't know if you have children, but I occasionally drank too much <laughs> at that age. And on one of these occasions, I was just utterly, again, like ashamed, and I was in New York, kind of sad about the fact that um, I could recall these flashes of oafishness from the night before. I was career-wise going from strength to strength, but um, interiorly there was this kind of sense that, that, that nagging, pestering voice saying, you know, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to change? And I kept circling about as I was about to take a train back to Massachusetts where I was living at the time, but I was circling about a four block radius of Penn Station in New York, and there happens to be a monastery of all places there, and I decided to step in just as the Sunday Mass was about to begin. And I found the experience, I write about this in my previous book, not the new one, which I will get to as well, but this the other book is called From Fire by Water, it's my conversion journey. I felt that there was something very holy that was radiating from the altar, and that although I was very abject, it was also radiating for me. Um, and then afterward, you know, I went to the vestibule of the, of the church, and there's a picture of the reigning pontiff, who was Pope Benedict at the time, and like the Mass, this picture of the Pope kind of sent me into a, a rapture of tears, a transport of tears. And the little priest came by, and he was a friar, and said, oh, you know, that's, that's not God, son. And I was like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know why he thought. Anyway, I, 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 couldn't, I sort of just collected myself and left. But um, I, I was beginning, my imagination was beginning to consent or assent to faith, um, that um, first of all, in my abjection, I'm desperately um, needy of, of divine grace. And more than that, I'm in need of authority, that in fact, I could not be my own authority in, in these matters, that, um, that, that when you say I'm my own authority, I have my own moral code, that was very often, at least in my case, an alibi for saying I'm going to make my own rules and my own rules are as flexible as jellyfish when I need them to go away because I want to do something, which, I, which nevertheless my, that, that conscience knows is a wrong thing to do. So I become a journalist, I went to law school, I became a journalist and ultimately uh, was working for the Wall Street Journal opinion pages, running the uh, European edition opinion pages in London 
And there, I ultimately took the decisive uh, leap to become a Christian, to call myself a Christian. And ultimately, I was received into the Catholic Church in 2016, again, after much reading, um, especially Pope Benedict's books, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, reading the Bible and finding that um, the, uh, that Genesis spoke profoundly to my modern condition, that when, uh, when God says to Cain, what have you done? What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Of course, I didn't, I didn't have any siblings, and I certainly hadn't killed anyone, but that that voice echoed the voice of my own conscience. What have you done? What have you done? Adam, where are you? Um, that was a better accounting of what I felt was broken in me and in the world around me than um, much in modern philosophy and psychology. So I decided to become a Catholic. Now, around that time, I had to um, find an image of the cross that was, that was closer to time than, than at the event of the uh, closer in time than the event, events of Calvary. Of course, the events of Calvary ever renewed at the altar, but I was looking for stories of people in their own lives renewing the sacrifice at Calvary, and that's when I came across the story of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Most of you probably know his story, but just very briefly, he was a Franciscan uh, uh, friar, uh, Polish, born just at the turn of the, just before the turn of the 20th century, pious little family in, in central Poland, and uh, becomes a, as I said, a Franciscan, gets trained in Rome, studies philosophy, and is one of these incredibly active men, men that I tend to admire, men and women, in the sense that, you know, unlike others, whose plans always kind of dissipate into hot air. He got things done. He comes back from Rome and he starts evangelical newspapers and radio stations and a monastery and then goes, to, goes on missions to the, to the Far East, builds a, a, a monastery in Nagasaki which survives the atomic bombing, comes back, all this despite tuberculosis, but eventually where his disease, consumption, tuberculosis, failed to strike him down, the Nazis did, because in 1939, the Nazis and the Soviets invade Poland simultaneously. Nazis from the West, Soviets from the East. And Father Maximilian Kolbe, although he has German blood and therefore would have been entitled under the Nazis' weird racial laws to being treated as a German, he insisted on his Polishness and began sheltering some 1,600 Jews at Neopokolonov, the, the monastery that he founded outside Warsaw. And uh, propagandizing against the Nazis relentlessly through his amateur radio stations and newspapers. He gets arrested once, they let him go. He gets arrested again. This time they don't let him go. They send him to Auschwitz where he becomes, uh, he's no longer a Catholic priest. He's a number tattooed on his arm. And then at some decisive moment in the summer of 1941, someone escapes from Father Maximilian's prison block and the Nazis have a rule Karl Fritsch, the man who runs Auschwitz at this time, or I should say he's the deputy commandant, has this rule that for every SKP, he would pick 10 men to randomly die of starvation. So he lines them all up from, from the block, and Father Maximilian is not picked when he, 
when Fritsch goes down the line. But when he hears one of the condemned men cry out, my wife, my children, Father Maximilian takes off his cap and steps forward from the line. And Karl Fritsch asks, Who, what, what does this Polish pig want? And he says very calmly, my name is Father Maximilian Kolbe. I'm a Polish Catholic priest, and I would like to die in his place. And here he points at the men with the wife and children. And so he does. And uh, uh, that takes about two weeks for him to die. All the others are either dead or unconscious by the time the executioner comes to finish the job. But Father Maximilian, who's been praying the whole time and not begging for food, just offers his own arm. And the prisoners and camp uh, orderlies said that he died with a radiant, calm face. So when I heard that story, it wasn't just a kind of uh, story. Well, it's not a, a real-world account. I couldn't just say, oh, OK, well, that's nice. I had to do something with Father Maximilian. Now, in, in, as I, this was as I was being received into the church, and I, so I decided to um, name my son, whom my wife and I were expecting by that point after St. Maximilian. I had picked the, the baptism and confirmation name Augustine because of the confessions was very influential on me, but I had to do something with Father Maximilian. But it wasn't just a name, obviously, you know, the, the Catholic practice of naming your children after saints to win that saint's patronage in heaven for, for the child. It was something else. I was trying to bind my own son to an account of freedom that was represented by the sacrifice of Maximilian Kolbe. It goes beyond the natural freedom, the natural freedom in the, in the classical and Christian sense of doing what you ought to do, it's supernatural freedom. It's an echo of, of the cross, of, of uh, 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 the idea that, uh, that the supreme act of love is to lay down your life for someone else, including in this case for someone you absolutely don't know. And my fear is, and this is why I wrote The Unbroken Thread, my fear is that um, St. Maximilian's Kolbe, his sacrifice won't be sensible, it won't be legible to my son, to, to his namesake, my Max. He's, don't worry, he's, he's like five years old. I'm not, I haven't told him about Auschwitz <laughs> this age. Um, but um, I, my, my sense is, and it's a well-founded sense, as we'll discuss, is that if left to our culture, um, our civilization will malform my Max such that he wouldn't be able to make sense of why St. Maximilian would do what he wanted to do, what he did. And the reason is that our culture tells us that freedom is what I thought freedom was, I think, when I was 13 years old. It's, it's a childish account of freedom. It means freedom means to just be unbound from nature and it's the obligations that it imposes on us, from traditional uh, truths and inheritances that otherwise bind uh, more traditional civilizations, and it's certainly of Christian civilization, and that your only goal in life is to maximize your autonomy, to pursue well-being, which is typically defined in merely material terms, and that to bind yourself is somehow to become less free. That is, you should always try to, quote, keep your options open as much as possible. It's one of the most hideous watchwords of the modern age, keep your options open. And this fear that I have for my Max, again, I don't think he'll become, you know, uh, 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 an opioid addict, right? Something like that. But my fear is that he'll become a person of very little moral purpose. He'll just sort of float through life because I see that among my own, 
upper middle class peers in New York today. And it's precisely because they want to keep their options open. They don't want to be bound to anything. And what I propose in the book is that actually that, that's not freedom because you haven't, um, you haven't actually realized your freedom. You haven't made it actual in some concrete act, whether that's the decision to marry someone, to go into religious life, or what have you. Your freedom is only in potency. It's never actually becoming a concrete act. And that's not freedom. Um, and in a kind of wider societal frame, we find that this mode of quote-unquote freedom actually practically leaves us less free. That paradoxically, what looked to modern eyes like barriers or obstacles imposed by tradition on the individual, now that those barriers are lost, we find that those barriers were actually guarantors of freedom and that their loss has meant lessening our, our, the degree of our true freedom. So give, I realize I'm, I'm <clears throat> I should speed things up. But in order to make this case to my son, ultimately to help him appreciate why St. Maximilian is recognized as a saint by the church, I pose 12 questions in this book in which each of them pokes holes in one of our certainties about what it means to be free, how, how, what it means to relate um, to members of the opposite sex, what it means to relate to one's community, to, to uh, divine commandments and so forth. I'm not, a, I'm not a philosopher or a theologian, I'm a journalist and storyteller, so I answer each of these questions by exploring the lives of one great thinker who, um, in one way or another, radically went to the root of that issue. Um, radical in its true sense. So to give you a few examples, and I think ones that speak to our current moment, um, for example, I, I, I discuss St. John Henry Newman on the question of authority, of conscience, really, and authority, and the relationship between the two. And I, as you know, the modern account of conscience means that I should be free to think whatever I want, right? And it's a motto that we often hear. Think for yourself, think for yourself. It's, it's as much a left-wing as a right-wing motto. It's the, the idea of free minds is enshrined not just in the mass heads of lots of liberal institutions, but libertarian and conservative ones as well. So the idea that you could not think for yourself, that you might subject your thinking to authoritative voices, is very offensive to us. As of course, for John Henry Newman, this was a profound issue. Uh, in the 19th century, there are these new claims being made in the name of conscience, which he says would have shocked the 18th centuries prior, the 18th centuries prior to the 19th century, about what, you could, what conscience would have meant. Because conscience is not just the idea that I get, I get to think whatever I want and act on it, but conscience is only conscience insofar as it reflects the dictates of a sort of universal moral law. And um, he kept warning that if you get rid of authorities, you won't end up with people who truly, quote unquote, think for themselves because that's impossible. We're human beings. One way or another, we're influenced by advertising, by political demagoguery. We're, at, we're influenced by um, mob behavior, I would argue, in the vast, fast few years. Mobs of left and right can easily sway you one way or another. 
You, you are only able to protect your mental freedom if you set up these authorities around it that can kind of guide you. Uh, so the, the, the uh, list of authorities that he gives, he said, the church is an authority, the scripture is an authority, the wisdom of antiquity is an authority, and a sort of well-rounded person who is truly mentally free will have this, these authorities as a resource so that the, some new claim comes and someone demands something politically or morally unconscionable and say, mm -mm, I'm not going to do that. That's not right. That's wrong. And that, that's what it means about being, having a conscience that is sufficiently anchored in authority or moored to some authority such that it can withstand the pressures that politics or advertising or commercial life impose on us. Another in the book that I mentioned is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, as you know, he's a great Soviet uh, dissident. I want, I want, I, you think twice now about citing some Russian figure. <laughs> but but um, it was a great man. But I, I use him for the principle that, very familiar in the classical and Christian tradition, but completely radical to our age, which is that, that freedom has a purpose. That, f that the freedom of acts, the, the value of free acts depends on their moral content. In 1978, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, great SKP from the Gulag, a survivor of the Gulag, the person who blew the, blew the lid on the existence of the Gulag and damned the Soviet system such that um, afterward only the USSR's most abject apologists would, could continue to um, defend the regime, comes to the United States, uh, well, initially a brief, brief detour in Europe, but then comes to the United States, becomes a kind of a recluse in Vermont, and for the most part he avoids giving interviews, giving speeches, because he says, as he wrote in his diaries, which are only now becoming available to us, I had said everything that really mattered in Moscow, why are you bothering me? But finally, Harvard University asked him to address their, its graduating class of 1978. And as he writes, in, again in his memoir of that time, that he, his hosts expected him to play his own variation on a familiar tune or a familiar ode. And that is the immigrant's ode to the great Atlantic fortress of, fortress of liberty, right? I, was, I came from a place which was horrifically unfree. Now I'm here and it's free. Let's all clap. Of course, he loved America and Americans, but that's not the speech he gave. The speech he actually gave was a critique of the West. Not that he had changed his mind about the Soviet Union. Of course, he detested that, that regime. But he warned that the West was becoming unfree in a different way by um, proposing a very impoverished, narrow account of freedom. Freedom just means self-maximizing yourself as an individual, um, pursuing your own well-being up to the limit of some, harming others and sometimes more so and even beyond that limit and generally speaking um, a kind of commercial legalism freedom had become pinched it had become narrowed and he, he saw in the United States in the free world a world in which the worst type he had seen in the gulag thrived right in one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich um, which is his great um, novel, but of course it's not really a novel, it's a thinly novelized account of what it's like in the, in the gulag system. He describes how some people under 
conditions of unfreedom you and I couldn't imagine, right? You, what autonomy does a gulag prisoner have? Nothing. Nevertheless, he just, under those conditions, there are some people who do their best for their fellow citizens, fellow prisoners, they honor God, they cherish their, their, the day's ration, and, they, and, they, and they, it suffices for them to look at, the, look at the sky and to be reminded that there is still a moral order despite what these hideous communist monsters might do to him. But there is another type who constantly in the camp takes every little advantage, um, tries to swipe everyone's food, bowls of food, that tries to get every little last bit of cigarettes that he can find and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, he is not free. He is less free than the other kinds of, uh, kind of prisoner, Ivan Denisovich himself, who can overcome, even in these conditions, can find interior freedom by overcoming his base attachments, or removing his kind of impure attachments. In the United States, he worried, our commercial culture had created a society in which that base type thrived, in which you're encouraged to be like that. Um, and so he saw this in, in the world around him. He's, he was taken advantage of by the, by the contractors whom he asked to build his house in Vermont. There's something very humorous about this, that you know, Solzhenitsyn, the writer, the great Soviet writer who had defied the KGB at a thousand turns to be able to get his manuscripts out and write his, um, his books and his histories and novels, somehow being taken advantage of by the American subcontractor. But the corporate publishers who would keep bringing out mangled editions of his books um, because they wanted to make a profit off of them. Or the, the litigious corporations that would go over, go, go, go to court to, um, over his material, right? They would sue each other. And sometimes he would try to reconcile them, but they would insist that the different publishers with different claims over his copyrighted material, they would insist on going to, to, to kind of court to the end, to the bitter end. He saw that as a kind of diminishment of, of freedom, and I think it becomes very prophetic when he warns that in our, in our media culture that can happen too, such that he says there, in, the, in the United States there's freedom for the newspaper and the owner of the newspaper, but not freedom for the reader to, in fact, get the truth. Um, and become, the, the questions that um, begin as a question of what, what do I do in relation to freedom also have these social ramifications of what is freedom for for a society. And he says, you're not free to debase yourself. And a society is not free merely because um, everyone is free to take the maximal legal advantage of each other. So to, to close, I'd love to read you a little letter that I wrote to Maximilian in the book. Um, I wrote the book at the um, tail end of the, well, no, I should say at the height of the coronavirus crisis and at a time when death was really thick in the air and we didn't quite fully understand the disease. And so I thought, well, I gotta, I gotta, if I'm writing this book, I better end it on some more poignant note than just a piece of information about great writers or what have you, but something more personal. So I wrote this letter, think about it in like April 2020, when things looked really, really bleak, certainly in New York, where, I was, where, where we live. Claire wrote, my dear son, I want you in every way to be a better man than I am. When I began writing this book for you, I feared that you might inherit a life of purposeless decadence, partly born of the abundance of our society. Now, as I finish the manuscript, a viral tide you can't begin to comprehend has engulfed us all, and it is likely to reshape the whole course of your life inflicting pressures and sufferings on you and your sister, we have another child, that can't but break my fatherly heart. 
I fear the absence of others' kids' company and the rough and tumble of play in these years might misshape your early development. If social distancing becomes permanent, you will be cocooned even more tightly in the world of screens and in virtual realities. The economic devastation will take years, if not decades, to repair. Your mother and I are hanging on, but many families aren't. And I worry that you will face inequalities that make today's yawning social gaps look minuscule by comparison. And yet I don't think our new normal is all that qualitatively different from what came before. Rather, the pandemic and our response to it have only put into hyperdrive trends that were already underway long before the virus arrived. Rule by a vast expert class, widespread economic precarity, people living restless, Sabbathless lives, ideological dividers partitioning off the wealthy and career mobile from the underclass. All these were part of our social condition before you were born, before anyone had heard of COVID-19. So here we are. I don't quite know how to prepare you for the exact realities that will define your adulthood. Most are unforeseeable. You are very young, and yet perhaps because death is so thick in the air these days, I feel called to put to paper the best advice I can muster. I should want you to at least avoid some of your father's and grandfather's mistakes, to read old books before new ones, to make all your decisions by the light of sound authorities, above all that of the Holy Church, to become not a glib man, the kind who laughs nervously when moral outrage is in order, or who preens morally rather than seek the moral way, to at least notice and feel a little bad when you're acting the hypocrite, to recognize that the moral precepts you expound demand to be acted upon by you in your immediate everyday surroundings, rarely in some lofty domain of the mind, to relate to the Blessed Virgin Mary as an uneducated peasant might. Can you do that for me? Hold her hand. She is our mother. She will tell you everything that truly matters to a truly happy life. Do as he says. John chapter 2, verse 5. St. Maximilian will be there for you too. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sorab. Uh, I'll let you rest your voice for a second. I'm going to make a couple of quick announcements. We're going to have a Q&A in a minute. Um, and again, I invite you to be thinking of those. And again, those of you who are joining us virtually, please feel free to send them in. Uh, let me make a few announcements before then, while Sorab rests his voice and gets a drink. Um, first is just a reminder of what will be our final event for this year's season of Faith and Life. It features Matt Burke, uh, Faith and Achievement, Lessons from a Life in Football. That's on... May 5th. Uh, if you want to be alerted to future speakers, uh, sign up for our emails uh, or uh, subscribe on social media and uh, we'll, we alert people about uh, what's coming up that way. We'd love for you to follow us. Those of you, either if you're here or at home, if you're a member or part of this community, you get the Inspire magazine, which is a quarterly magazine. Um, if you don't get it, um, I'm happy to send you a copy or you can find an online version of it on our website. I mention it tonight specifically because it has an interview uh, that Sorab was generous enough to do with me, I don't know, a month or two ago. Uh, so you can read that again either in person or, or not in, well, in the magazine or online. <clears throat> uh, what's the other thing I was going to say? Oh, a word of thanks. Um, again, this is the 19th year of these, these events. Uh, from the beginning, they have never been a budget item of the church. Um, they are supported entirely and completely 
by the generosity of individuals and organizations who believe in the mission of the Faith in Life series. Uh, you see the names of everyone who supports it in the program here tonight, and we've included those, by the way, on um, our live stream at the beginning of it. Uh, I'm not gonna na name all of them, of course. I, I will lift up our corporate sponsors, though, Crossroads Financial Group, Ulrich Real Estate, The Valuation Group, Mally Design, Augeo, Productivity Inc., Mastercraft Labels, Rapid Packaging, and Cressa. Uh, and uh, we are profoundly grateful, I am profoundly grateful to everyone listed there for making these events possible and allowing us to invite wonderful speakers like SoRab. Some of them are here tonight or watching. Would you join me in thanking all of them? Uh, and then the final thing I will say, and then I'll let SoRab take some questions, is a thanks also to Jeff Elstad, our wonderful guitarist. Um, we, we've had a couple of virtual events and Jeff hasn't been able to be with us for a couple of events, so Jeff, it's good to have you back. Uh, it's good to see you. So will you thank Jeff as well? Okay, if there are questions uh, from people here in the house, please come to one of the mics to ask them and I'm gonna check my phone to see if there are questions that are being sent in. Uh, so Rav, if you wanna come back up and respond to people. Um, growing up then in Utah with some strong Mormon influence and yet you embraced Catholicism. Of course, Mormonism is a very evangelical form of Christianity and I'm kind of wondering how did you wrestle with that dynamic in your life? Um, I try to be <laughs> very uh, generous because I actually have, uh, I have LDS friends. Um, but I'm forthright with them. I had a very difficult time accepting a religion that says the ancient Israelites came to the Americas and left behind tablets of their trials and tribulations that just seemed ahistorical. Um, <clears throat> but again, the things work in life has these interesting twists and turns. I had a pair of Mormon roommates when I was starting out college and we had this interesting tradition where we would leave books for each other. In my case, to try to shock them, I would put like William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch with all its sort of utterly obscene, to try to shock their Mormon sensibilities. And I don't know if they actually ever picked up any of the books that I left with my shock the bourgeois um, goal in mind. But I did pick up the book that they had left, which was, um, in addition to the Book of Mormon, they had left a, a, a New Testament. And um, again, this was at the height of me being sort of a militant atheist, but a thoughtless one, because I hadn't actually examined the gospel's claims, or, or any kind of religious claims, seriously. Um, so I picked up uh, uh, the, the, it was the, the full Bible, um, which they carry in addition to the, to the Book of Mormon. And I obviously went to the New Testament, and this is a very funny point, but I was like, well, it's the new. It's the, the <laughs> why would you want the old? <laughs> so, and sure, I, I did, and I, and I read, I think in one sitting, I read St. Matthew's Gospel. Um, and I was utterly moved by that. I didn't get to say the, uh, kind of trace my full intellectual journey from being a pretty militant atheist to coming to believe first in a God, then a personal God, and ultimately the God of the Bible. Um, 
but at the time I was very moved by it as narrative. The idea that God would uh, debase himself, to, would, would come down to man's darknesses um, and become one of us and, and accede to being you know, scourged and, and spat upon and humiliated by his, by his human cr uh, creatures was very, sh was very moving again, at the level of narrative, um, and very, very unusual. It, it defied, <clears throat> I would say, the kind of the pure monotheism that I had encountered, um, uh, the sort of uh, Allah-centric idea of God that you encounter in Islamic civilization, which God is just impossible, in, in, ineffably other, so that you could never um, wrap your mind around him at all or have any kind of encounter with him of that kind of, a, of here is God, he's a man, and he's being scourged by his own people, by his own creation. Um, and it left, it imprinted in my soul at the time, I think, this um, profound need for, for, for the redemptive sacrifice of the cross, in the sense that I was very moved by the idea of course, then I, when I close the book, I'm like, oh, of course you can't believe it because it's, you know, whatever, it's superstitious nonsense. But wouldn't it be nice if it were like that? Then years later, when I encounter the Mass and um, uh, you hear the words, on the night he was betrayed, it sort of reactivated that initial uh, encounter with the Gospel that I had had. So I, I thank my Mormon roommates, even if I you know, have some pretty profound theological disagreements with them. Thank you, Tim, and the church for putting these on. It's a really a wonderful series. Uh, I can understand supply chain issues. Our house got hit December 15th by lightning. We still aren't back in our hotel. It took uh, uh, over two and a half months to get circuit breakers that were on back order. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first question, I was kind of pondering freedom. And on one hand, Christ said, I've come to set you free and you shall be free indeed. On the other hand, uh, the word says you are controlled, however, not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And then it also says, once you were slaves to sin and now you are slaves to righteousness. Do we as humans truly have freedom or is true freedom becoming a slave to Christ? That would be the first question. The second question would be, it seems to me that the church in America has become very impotent and is not influencing our society in a godly manner. Uh, what, in, in your opinion, would it take, or how can the church change uh, to become a, a, a force of influence to change our culture for truth and righteousness, and how would, um, how do you see the church moving ahead in that area? Thank you, sir. Both very good questions. I'll address the first. Um, that um, again, I, I, I'm a lay person, and I, there's a there's a there's a the pastor there, so I feel a little bit always hesitant propounding on theology, but. Um, I think, there you go, fair enough. Um, 
it seems to me, I mean, at least at least the, the, the Catholic account is that, that um, God wants us to freely choose to be his slaves. He doesn't want the love of an automaton. Um, otherwise, why allow the first transgression in the garden? And that, that makes the, the life of discipleship, I think, all the more, all the more beautiful that it's, that it's, a, that it's a choice. Um, of course, it's, it's God who draws us to himself. He, does the, the, he reaches out first, as it were, with divine grace, but then it's up to, up to man and woman to, to reply in freedom to that. So, um, so I hope I, that answers that as best as I can. The second question is more in my pay grade. And the, the way I would say this is not that what can the church do of course, there's all sorts of things that the church, broadly speaking, in America could do, but the one that I'm more interested in is what is it about society? What, about, what is it about the temporal order, um, our, our common wheel, that m- makes it difficult for people to live ordinary lives of virtue and ordinary lives of prayer? Um, what I mean by that is... Uh, Partly, I answer it that way because I'm a layman, right? And the Second Vatican Council, uh, in its various um, dogmatic constitutions and, and definitions, constantly says it's, the, it's up to lay people to transform, to, to integrate the temporal order. This is, it's our sphere. So in some ways, I leave it to the church to figure out how to be a better church. That's, that's its job. That's the job of... Of, of the episcopate and, 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 and so the body of people who, are, who have holy orders. Um, so that's my focus, first of all. But more than that, I would say, and I think we have to come to a recognition that, the materi- that, that ordinary people being able to live lives of virtue and um, lives of prayer, hopefully, requires, there is a certain material and legal substrate to that. In other words, if you have a society in which um, every person carries a little brothel in their pockets, instantly accessing, um, you know, not the pornography of 30 years ago, but utterly hardcore stuff, and that now we know that something like nine out of 10 teenagers encounter hardcore pornography, before hitting pu- puberty, this was at the outset of the 2010s already the case. That's a, that's a pretty big barrier, and it's just one example. That's a pretty big barrier to a life of faith, um, right? It's a, I mean, I, I forget about the life of the supernatural life even. It's a pretty ba- big barrier to, to natural development. Or if you have a society of um, where there is no sense of, for example, Sabbath, where workers have this... Uh, are subject to algorithmic human resources scheduling that has no care for what that would mean for, you know, a single mom trying to spend time with her children. On Sunday, suddenly she's scheduled, and then there's no reliability about what that would bring the next week. That's going to be pretty hard for her to um, uh, uh, to do the best she can to create a condition of, okay, on Sundays we pray, on Sundays we contemplate, on Sundays we spend time with each other. So, um, without sounding like a vulgar materialist, it is important to say that the, that the life of faith requires a kind of supportive substrate of, of society, and that we shouldn't, 
you know, sometimes I speak to, and again, this is across left and right, there are thinkers about these issues who say, you know, it, well, if you do that, if you address those things, then you're kind of making it too easy. And I think that certainly it's never been the Catholic view that, you know, you create a society, yes, some, some seed will fall on um, in, a, in a bed of thorns, but you don't then want to create an entire society that's a garden of thorns and then say, well, let's see who can walk through that garden of thorns to, with their faith intact. You should try to prune the garden as, as, a, as a kind of task for the common good so that, you know, ordinary people can, can live lives of faith. And, <clears throat> I mean, a book that's very influential on me on these questions is by a Jesuit priest uh, from the 60s. The book is called Prayer as a Political Problem. And he makes a, a, a pretty you know, unassailable empirical point, which is that the, Rome, the, the Christian share of the Roman Empire, we know, exploded after the Constantinian conversion, right? Religion, true religion before that conversion was a, a, the preserve of, 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 of a kind of spiritual elite, people who could withstand unbelievable persecutions for the sake of the church. And of course, those are so many of the saints. Those are the saints whose names um, is still remembered in the ordinary of the Mass. Um, but that's not all Christians, right? That's, that's, not all or, that's not ordinary people, and yet our Lord left a Mass religion. Even while he was carrying out his public ministry on earth, he's constantly in these situations where he's with people who are... Uh, 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 showing the ordinary joys and, and aspirations of daily life. Marriage, wedding feasts, right? Having children around, lots and lots of people. Now, those people may abandon him and then vote to crucify him later, but he said that it means something that he likes a mass religion. So that when the Constantinian conversion happens, uh, uh, Jean Danielou, the, the Jesuit priest, says Christianity, far from it being a distortion of Christianity, Christianity becomes more fully itself when it has the support of a material environment in which it's geared toward helping people. And it's true that the, you know, whatever, the average Roman guy may have been a week earlier, he still was offering sacrifices to the, to the pagan gods, and a week later he's like, oh yeah, okay, now we're doing this. He may not have understood every article of the creed, but he still benefits from the sacraments, he still benefits from an order that's generally humane, and babies, unwanted children, are no longer left outside the city walls. So I think, where are we now? We're in a situation where it's becoming necessary to have heroic virtue to be able to hold on to the faith. And that's not good, because most people don't have, their, most people aren't, don't have that supernatural level of heroism. So what do we need to do? We need to prune the garden a little bit. And if you think, from hearing that, that I mean we need some sort of like right-wing cultural program, that's not at all what I mean. A lot of it has to do with our political economy. Um, on those questions, you know, the solutions I would propose would be typically associated with the left. But there are also some cultural things that would be more associated with a, with a political right in this country. So each have a piece of the truth in the search for the common good. But we need that material substrate to, to support people. Sorry, that was a very long answer, but it's an interesting topic to me. So, Rob, thank you so much for your. Oh, sorry. Th yeah, no, no problem. Thank you so much for your comments. Uh, wonderful. Um, what what strikes me so much about this book, um, your first book is outstanding, and then this book is I can see where the genesis of this would be so important to you because it's a letter to your son, 
And I think, um, you know, I'm a convert, and, and I know also that in having come across Chesterton and Flannery O'Connor and Benedict XVI and so many others, you come across these things and you say, this is amazing. How come somebody wasn't necessarily talking to me about this? And you get so excited about sharing it with somebody else. And who do you want to share it with? But the people you love the most, and especially your, your child. And I, I don't know if it's an apocryphal quote, but it's from Aquinas. It says, if you want to convert somebody, take them by the hand and guide them. And this, this book seems like it's a guiding book in that respect. And my question for you is, um, we live in a world where there's, everybody's so distracted. And there's so much information in our pockets. We have all the information in the world, but everybody's so distracted by it that they're losing the permanent things. And the question is, and I think your book is trying to attend to it, and you're doing it to your child, but also we're all benefiting from it through your wisdom passed on to your child. How do we break through the distraction? How do we, how do we, because I teach, I, I practice medicine, but I also teach kids in a, a small college up north called St. John's. And when you pass some of this stuff on, whether it's a faith orientation to the college kids or to the medical students or residents, it's a literary uh, reflection from Shakespeare or something, something they haven't read. They say, wait a second, how come, how come nobody's talked to me about this before? And it's like an epiphany for them. It seems like we need to crack through this haze, this facade, this, uh, this veneer that is kind of lost in distraction. And I know your, your whole book is getting to that, but do you have, as a mentor to your child, but also you're kind of trying to mentor society a little bit with this book, how do you get through? How do you crack through the haze of immense distraction, of innumerable bits of information, and get people to say, that's amazing, that's amazing. I want to share that with somebody else that I love. Todd, right? Yeah. We haven't met in person, so nice to, it's nice to meet you. Um, yeah, well, it's a very good question. I mean, I, as you're saying distraction, I'm sort of like, when, when I don't get to look at my phone, when I've felt it buzzing, I get a sort of twitching, like, you know, like, a, like an addict. Um, so that's me. <laughs> so, I mean, look, in terms of my own family life, I mean, I will prevent my kids from having smartphones until they're, you know, 18, and I maybe they'll, they may hate me, and they might, but um, no, I refuse. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, they hire neurologists to make the, the infinite scroll ever more addictive, um, and shame all those neurologists who participate in that kind of thing, but um, they do. And so, as I say that, I think in part it's a policy problem. In part, it's a policy problem. And as you know, a lawmaker um, in the Senate introduced a bill saying there has to be, we should put a stop to the infinite scroll. And of course, um, it mocked roundly from every side as though it's such a crazy thing, but I, th I don't think so. So that's what I mean. And it goes back to the question to the other gentleman, the answer to the other gentleman's questions. Partly it's like, you know, a, a, you don't have to, it's not natural for, for human beings to stare at a screen that's infinitely addictive like that, right? And so, the, and I think over time we'll begin to see this is becoming a bipartisan issue. Um, you, we will begin to see policy pushback. It's certainly true that, as you know, people in Silicon Valley are extremely tech-free tech households. In the, 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 the executives themselves run very tech-free households. Um, but if you have, if you have um, low-income families, you know, where there's a lot of parents are working two jobs or whatever, the little iPad or the screen is um, um, 
pretty ubiquitous and hard to resist. Um, and then, how do you, but then that's not enough to, 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 the, to the second half of your question, how do you lead someone to something amazing? I'm sure you um, do this with loved ones, but I still, I mean, I, that reading time with my son, is, and it's, it's remarkable, not my, I'm not saying my son's at all a genius, he's not, he's just like an average kid, but they, they get things, and even in the moment where they don't get, you think they didn't get something, let's say I'm reading The Hobbit with him right now, and then the next time they'll ask a question that makes it clear that they did, they did in fact. And so, you know, I try to trust that and, and just keep, I don't know, keep introducing him to the books that, that preserve my own sanity and hopefully will preserve his. Ma'am, I'm sorry. All right, so let's do one more. Yeah, final question. Hi. Um, I did read your last book, or I should say I lis listened to you oh, read yeah. it and uh, really found it wonderful. Lots of things I'm going to be thinking about for a long time. Um, you've, my question has to do with your per perceptions about the world and society and institutions at, at this time, given your concerns. Um, you've touched a little bit on, on um, the church and what it might do, but I'm curious what institution, other institutions or individual people, public figures you're aware of, or vehicles make you feel optimistic that things can be different. Does that make sense? Yes. I will say this, that I see an enormous ferment of young, serious people of faith, primarily Christians, and it's primarily I should say Catholic because that's the world in which I'm, I'm most immersed, but not exclusively Catholic and not even exclusively Christian. Um, Twenty-something-year-olds who, and, and, uh, and late twenties, early twenties, who just are very serious about life. In part because they are facing a real desert in so many ways. There are th there are some things that are very, very bleak, and the very bleakness drives them to say there must be a, a different world is possible. Where can I recover some other wisdom? Um, than, than the way we've done things relatively recently. And so that's driving them to go to, to read the Summa very seriously, to, to revive the kind of classical account of law, which is not just law is um, meaningless, but law is, is only law insofar as it's ordered to the common good, and so on. So there are young lawyers, young legislative staffers, um, scholars, and so forth. That's it. so. They're not any politicians, uh, to be honest. I mean, like recently, even some of the politicians that I used to praise, you know, trust not in princes. Then you see them say something, you're like, oh. But so, but no. But young people, I would say, serious Christians. Yes. Thank you for coming out. Uh, when I booked this, I'm not the best with holidays. I sort of forgot that it was St. Patrick's Day. I also kind of forgot it was the start of March Madness. Um, so to those of you who stayed at home because of that, um, apologies. I will say Gonzaga did win in a nail-biter earlier tonight, so that was good. Um, and I pray that your team does well. So thank you for coming out. Thanks.
to those of you who watched online, but Sorab, most of all, thanks to you. We are so grateful that you were with us. And as a small gesture of our gratitude, we have a little plaque that says uh, simply with thanks to Sorab Amari for bringing faith to life. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.